In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. I think Dublin is coming disgraceful on that stabbing. There's not but stabbings, and I don't think there's enough getting done for them. There's not enough police pulling the youths, you know. And is this the worst you've ever yeah, seen? It's the worst, it? yeah, it's worst. And I think it's worse now in the summer. You know, coming down where, where I live, Cherry Street, I think it's worse. You come from everywhere. And is it bad in particular everywhere, in the everywhere. area you live? Not in the area of Street in particular, Gill Street. Gill Street, that's the worst. That's where they all congregate. And how many people are you talking? I'm talking about 40, 50. Young people? Young people. They're between 12, 13, 14, 16. And did the cause trouble? Sorry. Yeah, they do. And I, think, I don't think the guard is doing enough. Now, I'm born in the city. But I wouldn't travel up in the city after 8 o'clock at night. I'd be afraid of my life. You'd be afraid to go into the yes. city centre? And most people my age, 59, 60, would be afraid after 8 o'clock at night to go up to town. Is it the worst you've ever seen it? It was never like that in my day. Put it that way. Well, why do you think things are like this now? We've seen three stabbings in the city over the weekend. Drugs. Drugs. That's it. Drugs, tablets, cocaine and drink. And you can't handle it. What do you think needs to be done? Are Gardaí doing enough? Well, I think they're doing their best. How can you control a teenager full of alcohol and all kinds of substances? If the parents can't do it, how's the Gardaí going to do it? Barry White reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, did you know that email is 50 years old? Yeah hard to believe. And its history is not clear-cut. Here's Simon Tierney. Now, I should say that electronic messages, primitive form of email, did exist from 1965. Mm. These were messages which, because at that time, you time-shared a computer. Computers were extremely expensive. This one that Tomlinson used to send the first email cost $250,000. That's 1971 money. And And it was the size of a fridge. It was the the size, it was about half the size of the studio. Oh, God. Um, It was was huge. And... um, there were very few of them in existence. In fact, there was only about a thousand people on the ARPANET in the entire world at that time. So there were very few people who would be using email, if, even if it was invented. But what you did was you would use the computer f- from 8am to 9am. Then I would come along as your colleague and I would have my time from 9am to 10am. But you might want to leave some correspondence for me or some instructions. Mm. And you could leave that as an email, in inverted commas, that word hadn't been coined yet, on the on the console. And I would pick that up later, but only right. on the same computer. What Tomlinson did, his genius, was to be able to transfer an electronic message between two separate computers using a local network. And he did that and he called it an ARPA network text message. That's what the first email mm-hmm. was called. And he sent it between, we have a photograph of the computer that he sent it on, which I tweeted earlier, this giant computer that I mentioned. And he sent it between 10 feet apart, these two computers, and he sent it. And he can't remember exactly what the first email content of the first email was, but it, he says it was either a line from the Gettysburg address four score, you know, that that Mm -hmm. famous uh, Lincoln speech. Or else it was QWERTY, which of course is the first letters for top left of the keyboard, or else testing one, two, three. So nothing nothing very 
inspirational uh, uh, or what have you. But we should mention that Tomlinson made another really important contribution to the history of email and that's the introduction of the at format. That's, I mean, because you'd think the kind of messaging service thing, somebody would have thought of that one anyway. But the at thing, that's that's completely profound. That's, you know, we're still using that today. Absolutely. And as he put it himself, Sean, he was trying to come up with something that would be host something or sorry, user something host, right? Mm. To define who the sender and who the receiver was so that you could target a message at another person. And he realised that the at sign on the on the keyboard, it's the only preposition on a keyboard. Mm. And it is, if you think about it. But until 1971, that symbol was rarely used by anyone. Yeah. What would you be using it for? Oh, yeah, good point, yes. I mean, you might say, I'll meet you in the pub at... 8pm. Yeah. But I think people didn't really even use it for that. They would no. just write AT. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, uh, and the first head of stage to use email was, was Tech Mad Queen Liz. Tech Mad Queen Liz, yeah, yeah on her MacBook, no <laughs> doubt. Um, yeah, this was 1976. Also, the first time that a government organisation started using email. Again, it wasn't called email at this time. I can't stress that enough. Uh, Jimmy Carter's campaign team in the 76 election, they used it to message each other internally. Ah, right. OK, now... Uh, when we come to 1979, though, is there a bit of a conflict as to who actually invented email? Well, there is. And I think it's important to mention this, Sean. But it also speaks to a larger theme which we've dealt with on this series many times over the years is that with great inventions often they are developed by people independent of each other at a similar time in different parts of the world. Mm. This happens all the time. Human ingenuity, no one owns the codes to human ingenuity. People might be coming up with similar ideas in different places. So V.A. Shivya Ayadurai, which is an American man of Indian descent, he claims to have invented email himself in 1979 when he was um, a child tech prodigy um, uh, uh, at MIT at the time, uh, when he developed an internal intranet messaging system, which he called email, and he was the first person to to use that term ah. in relation to electronic messages that we, that we know of. Um, so he has a number of claims on this, but um, the Smithsonian, who took some of his papers, um, who received and, and accepted some of his papers about 10 years ago, they have examined this and they said, quote unquote, exchanging messages through computer systems, what most people call email, predates the work of Ayadurai. But they also say, and this is important, is that you know, different people made different contributions to the development of mm. email. And um, it's all often unhelpful for us to, to to ascribe the origin story of any one invention to one particular person, because there's always so many different things. You know, Ayuradurai's work was on a small office, inter-office scale, and that was a great contribution as well. Tomlinson's was between giant, extremely valuable computers in a US Defence Department. That's a very different situation as well. Mm. So lots of different ingredients leading to what we call email today, Sean. Simon Tierney from Stuff That Changed the World. Now, this week, documentary on News Talk explored LGBT rights and experiences in traveller communities. 
On this Christmas day, I'm telling my story of what life was like for me being a gay settled traveller. We all get lonesome at this time of year for loved ones who have passed away, like my brother who took his own life. Suicide is prevalent in our community. I know not all suicides are because of being gay, but I think that many is for that reason. The fear of being disowned. Travellers are already in a minority, so if our own family or community rejects us, we have nowhere to turn. I myself attempted suicide many times. If there are any parents listening, that's why I'm telling my story in the hope that travellers will accept and support their sons and daughters' sexuality. As a child growing up in a settled community and being the only traveller on my road, it was very hard for me and my brothers to go to school. But we did go to school, I even went down to secondary. Back then, we were always last in line because the others, like, they would think that they would catch knacker germs, which is still probably going on today. I remember Christmas growing up, I'd always want Barbies and buggies, and my dear mother always got them for me. I was obsessed with the Eurovision. That's when I was in my element. We moved to the country, and I had to leave my Barbies behind and try to be someone I'm not. I remember writing to this agony aunt when I was 14. Her, her advice was great. I had a few failed relationships with women who I wasn't attracted to, you know, trying to be someone that I'm not. Eventually, after many suicide attempts, I told my dad. It was like a scene from EastEnders, me crying, saying I had to tell him something, so I said, Dad, I'm gay. And as cool as a breeze, he said, Son, I've always known that. When my mad always accepted me, but it was harder for him. He eventually did... But after that, things changed a lot for me with family and friends. A lot of straight guys who were my friends, they were kind of ashamed. I lost a lot of my cousins because they thought I was bringing shame in the family. I was the first openly gay traveller in my town. I'm a minority in a minority. One thing to, um, to get clear is I was born gay. You don't just turn gay. It's how you're made travellers we've always been discriminated against for just being ourselves we didn't choose to be a traveller and you don't choose to be gay we're all human the point that I'm trying to get across to everyone is a mum and dad's love should be unconditional if you're gay and afraid to come out and if your family or anyone has a problem with you being gay just remember it's their problem not yours and any parents that's listening, if you think your child is gay and they won't say it, ask them about it and ensure them that your feelings won't change even if they are gay. I'm happier now that I'm not living a lie and pretending to be something that I'm not. Back when I was a teenager, I would have never have dreamt of marriage equality. Now my friends have families of their own and all I want for Christmas is a family of my own. Some powerful stories there from Prejudice and Pride from Documentary on News Talk. I had been renting for just over 10 years when I separated and it was really a, a ridiculous waste of money. I had been looking at my options. Was I going to buy a bit of land or this, that or the other? And then the boat. I've been around boats a long time. I was a diver and, and a swimmer. So the boat seemed like a nice option. I thought I'd give it a try. You were drawn to the water again? Always drawn to the water. Water, baby. Yeah. And do you think the local authorities or people in charge is there more that should be done to make it a more attractive option there's elements of it that are a challenge I carry every drop of water I use here I have to carry it on board and you're carrying it all on in 20 litre containers pumping your storage out is a challenge the lack of facilities with 
waste disposal. Like if they could allow us to have bins here that we'll pay for and all that, it, it would really, really help stuff and give us water and electricity and a pump out, that would be fantastic. I was struggling to find somewhere to rent. The prices were going up and I have three dogs as well, which can be an issue sometimes. It meant I couldn't rent a room somewhere. I'd have to have a place by myself. I used to walk my dogs down here. I was living locally and I got chatting to one of the boaters and I just decided to go for it and it's the best decision I ever made. And there's no landlord to tell you you can't have a dog? Yeah, exactly. Like, and It's your own, you know. I'd find it strange going back to land after all this time. It's a nice way of life because it brings you back to basics. And I see here now, we're along the banks, you have your bag of rubbish and your litter picker. <laughs> Is that a big issue, having to clean up basically your garden? It can be at times, especially in the summer. Is there more people taking to it recently? Yeah, when I bought my boat there was only four boats here and I remember I remember coming up on the train about a week after I bought the boat and there were 17. So it kind of, it took off very quickly, you know. But again, it's not for everyone. You have to be willing to make sacrifices and to adapt to that way of life. This is a family home. I, I mean, I had my partner, I had my baby girl. You did consider looking into a mortgage? Yeah, I mean, uh, we were very close to buy two properties, right? We got the mortgage and it was approved. I draw it from the bank. With all those situations, we just decided just to fully commit to the water. We had a, whole, uh, a boat that we were using as a holiday home and, you know, we, we grew to love it and we said, yeah, we, we are ready for this, right? I think that it was a good decision. Now, as obviously, the number of people is increasing and, you know, more people are actually started to ask for rights and also for responsibilities, right? How do you find this lifestyle with, with a newborn baby, just keeping up with the maintenance and that? Well, I mean, like, you know, just having a baby on its own is challenging, right? I think that, you see, we, we live in an ice barge. In the case of here, I don't really see any challenge, right? I mean, different from living in a house, right? Josh Crosby reporting for News Talk Breakfast. On Friday, Lunchtime Live travelled up to County Donegal. Here's Andrea Gilligan. David Roach, we've just travelled from Dublin to be here today. You know, it's hard to get away from the connectivity issue physically in terms of the travel and the distance and all that comes with that. Is that a problem for businesses based here? I wouldn't think so. I, I mean, when you put the flag up what Donegal is uh, offering, it's a very big package. Uh, the work-life balance here is exceptional, far greater than what people think. So when you add that into uh, the opportunity to recruit people from other counties, they look at the complete package and they say to themselves, at this point of time where technology is really the winner why not we've got everything here from all the facilities all the capabilities that any county offers and i think we were surrounded by academic talent we're surrounded by academic institutions universities so i think we have the right success formula in order to cater for that Gary Martin, looking at the overall impact of Brexit as well, um, we can't get away from from that here in in the border area, in a border county with proximity between the north and Straban to the likes of Lifford. What's going to be the impact of that? You can look at Brexit, I suppose, in two fronts to say they're a threat or an opportunity. We've chosen to look at it as an opportunity. We have a unique location on the island of Ireland. We're very proximate to the UK and I suppose we, we work very closely as you know as part of a single economic ecosystem with our colleagues in Derry and Tyrone and Fermanagh and we think that uh, I suppose in order to make this part of the island work going forward collectively and collaboratively and to I suppose build on the great work that was done on, on, the, on the back of the peace process and the various agreements we need to ensure 
that the, the various strengths of the respective areas are, are built upon. So we, we work very closely with our colleagues and our councils in Derry and, and Michael and, and Paul and we work with the guys in, in Ulster University. So it's, it, again, it's part of that single offering and collectively we probably have a larger conurbation than many of the, the other cities on the island of Ireland. And sometimes that's lost on people as well in the sense of saying, well, look, gosh, it's Donegal, what kind of an ecosystem can they have? We have an ecosystem that's as strong, if, if, if not stronger, than any area outside of Dublin, Belfast or Cork, in our view. And that's what we try to sell. And that's what you know, gives companies like David's the opportunity to sell Donegal. And the strengths that you have then on the back of that, this, you know, the quality of life. You're from the county yourself, Andrea. You know exactly what we have here. And it's, when you blend that together, you know, with the good employment opportunities, the really good, safe environment that you have, you no longer have to work in a glass edifice along the quays in Dublin, you know, to achieve your life's ambitions in whatever economic sector you're working on. You can do it here in a rural area. And in a post-COVID world, I think people have asked themselves that question. Can we do that now in a, a, a Donegal context, in a rural context? The digital hubs will certainly help with that. Uh, and we certainly, I suppose, will work collectively and continue to collaborate to make that, uh, I suppose, ambition realised and in our county. Andrea Gilligan broadcasting live from County Donegal. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. I think the fact that you say you're not sure is part of the issue, Shane. Um, we need to own it, in my view. Uh, and I know you say we wouldn't start from here. We did start from here. Many of us, myself and Peter Boylan included, said several years ago when this was all being up for debate and the plans are being made, that this is a bad idea, that moving it to a Catholic ethos hospital like St. Vincent's... So where do you put it then? Well, to be honest, it isn't even the best site anyway, and I'll tell you why, because we may hear Minister Stephen Donnelly saying it's marvellous to have, you know, an obstetric hospital co-located with with an adult general health hospital. It is, but it's not gold standard. Gold standard is tri-location. It's it's general health, OBS and PEDS. So TALA... But paediatrician hospital, you mean. Sorry, forgive me. Uh, A children's hospital, a a, a woman's health hospital and general hospital that's the better so so somewhere like Tala would have actually been a better place where there was that so why didn't they go to Tala then or somewhere like James's I don't no, I cannot answer that question. But what oh, I can sure, James's hospital. Sure, everyone's opposed to that one as well. What I can say is this: is there is an issue of trust here. We were told it has been widely reported that we were told by the Sisters of Charity that they were going to gift it to the state. That has not happened. They have gifted it to the St Vincent's Hospital Group, a different entity altogether. That in itself is a breach of trust. Not necessarily a breach of contract. I don't know how that yeah, works, but, but a breach that's of true, trust. But how do we get how do we get around that? Well, I think there is an element of brinksmanship here. I do not think, I, I disagree with you. Yes, sir. I don't, think, I don't think we should proceed and hope for the best because if we turn out to have spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions on a women's health hospital in this country post the repeal of the Eighth Amendment and it turns out that okay. it isn't able to so, fulfil its duties. But are we talking compulsory purchase or are you saying build it somewhere else? I am saying if we can't compulsory purchases, then we rip it up and we start again. Or perhaps, do you know what? Here's a novel idea. Maybe we should compulsory purchase the whole of the St. Vincent's Hospital Group. Because do we so need... That would take do we That need, would take a decade. Do we need... But, but Shane, it looks to me like we've uh, gone but, down a road uh, no, that's already going to take like, a decade. I, and I understand, and, and we definitely wouldn't start from here, and I understand people's frustrations. We should but, never but, have gone near but, this No, this we shouldn't. But clear. what is the solution? And that's what we need to get now. What is the solution? We find out if we can own it outright here. If we can't own it, uh, we, we, we call the, the sisters and the St. Vincent, Vincent's Hospitals Group's bluff and, they, and we leave. And they, yeah, So we go to Tala, basically. We, we, we go to Tala or James's or somewhere where actually we are able to operate the hospital in a fit-for-purpose way for the women of Ireland. Shane Coleman and Kira Kelly on News Talk Breakfast. 
Right. You, were, you were just talking about Djokovic there. Um, if Djokovic gets to 21 and he surpasses Federer and Nadal, does he become the greatest tennis player of all time? Is it about the numbers? Or I know you say Federer is, but does the numbers, do the numbers actually, should they matter to a degree? Well, you know I'm a Federer man, so I'll obviously lay my, my, my cards on the table there. So I would believe that Federer is the best of all time. However, I'll answer your question and say that if Djokovic gets to 21 or 22, or then possibly 23, um, I do believe he has a, uh, the right to say that he is the best of all time. Why? Because he's one of only a few players, and Federer is not one of them, who have won every major twice. That's one. The second reason would be he has a very, very strong winning record against the two other greatest players of all time, namely Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer. He has beaten them more times than they have beaten him. Uh, he's won Wimbledon, I think, five times, won the US eight or nine times, won the French twice, um, and uh, and the, the, the US three or four times. So he really would have a claim to fame uh, to be the number one. The only thing that doesn't, um, that, that mitigates against him are two things. His style, um, which is a little robotic and a little bit um, athletic, physical um, and, and lacking in grace. And two, his personality. He's not liked like the other two. Does that come into the, and, does that come into the conversation about the greatest player? No, it doesn't. But I think it comes, but, but I think popularity um, I think the greatest player is created by love as much as anything else and, and reputation and idolatry and how much you're embraced by the game itself. So I do think it has a factor um, to play. So, for example, one of the reasons why Federer is the greatest tennis player of all time is not because he's won 20 majors, although that's big. It's because of his grace and style and all courtability. But it's also to do with his really lovely personality his, his, his gentleness his, his naivete um, uh, his, his kind of almost blunt honesty about himself one of the funniest ones I've ever seen with Federer was I don't know if I ever told you this one but um, the, the, the journalist says Roger how do you keep doing this and he kind of had a, a little think about it a bit like Paul Carrington would and he went um, well obviously there's an enormous amount of talent there and everybody laughed in the room and he kind of copped himself on and went, oh, what have I just said? So he didn't say it with any sense of um, big-headedness or boastfulness. He was actually trying to quantify what it was that made him do this all the time. And one of the things were obviously that he had an enormous talent. And it was really innocent the way he did it. And I think that's what endears him to people, that um, there's a kind of a little bit of a clunkiness and a naivety about Federer that people warm to. Um, listen, Maraid, Maraid Ronald and myself talk about this all the time as well. Physically, he's also beautiful. Nobody wears tennis clothing like Federer. Nobody wears clothing like Federer. I mean, nobody could have pulled off that look in 2007 or 2008 when he came out with the Wimbledon and the, the jacket, the white jacket. Do you remember, John, the white yes, jacket with yeah, the gold, the jacket, the gold yeah. lapel? Yeah. Nobody could have pulled that. Duran Duran might have or something. Duran Duran might have, yeah. George Michael. He's, he's, he's a catwalk model. He looks amazing. And, uh, and he's so photogenic as well. And then, of course, there's the rivalry. The rivalry between the two of them. The rivalry that will never be surpassed. Um, McEnroe and Borg only played against each other. Do you know how many times, John? Four? Thirteen. Okay. McEnroe and Borg played. Uh, I think Federer and, sorry, I think Djokovic and Nadal have played 58, 59 times. So they've gone into a different stratosphere mm -hmm. of rivalry. Um, so, so, so I would think, yes, Djokovic has a claim to fame, but the fact that he, his style is a little robotic and the fact that he's never been fully embraced by the game 
is also will also mitigate against him. But yes, if you're going to take it on pure tennis terms, he may be the greatest ever. Mario Rosenstock and John Duggan from Off the Ball. On Saturday, Future Proof explored the science of changing your personality. Here's Jonathan McRae and Dr. Christian Jarrett. I wanted to ask you about the things that we can't change, like our name or how we look. Does that affect how people treat us? And if so, does that affect our personality? Like, are there any studies to show that if you change your name or have plastic surgery, that your personality changes too? Well, there's actually, it is a little bit controversial. There's some research that suggests even like what you wear can can change change you psychologically to an extent. It's called um, enclosed cognition. So, um, yeah, there was a study found people were, when they dressed up in a, um, like a laboratory or oh lab coat right. lab coat yeah they their attention to detail was enhanced um there's other research suggests like yeah we are treated di- like if you wear a suit and, and you you ask someone for a favor a favor in public for change for the phone or what well, we don't really have public phones anymore but that those were old studies um yeah you're gonna you you will be treated differently depending on how you dress and you can imagine that sitting in train a kind of dynamic where you feel differently about yourself you feel more professional in a, in a suit and what have you um, no and totally i mean like um i feel very different when i'm in a tracksuit i feel ashamed and embarrassed and i don't want people to see me I, it's true and and that absolutely would have an effect on how i treat other people i mean maybe it's not my personality but I certainly don't say hello to neighbours and I don't, I'm not outwardly seeking to have conversations with people. I'm walking the dog and I want nobody to see me and I'm going to go back home. But I'm, I mean, the, the question goes back to my original, um, which is, is it simply your personality is what you do to people outside? Uh, so in the moment, in the, in the situation, it's not personality. But over the long term, you see, if you if you change your habits and mix up your routines over the longer term and build up, you know, a succession of experiences that make you feel a certain way. Yeah. And the, there, there's actually this concept of uh, self-signaling as well. So, you know, if you get a smart haircut, dress more smartly, shine your shoes and so on, and, and, you, know, and you make a habit of that, you get up early in the morning, an hour earlier than you used to. Over time, you are, for a start, you're signaling to yourself something about the kind of person you are or that you aspire to be. Yeah. Through force of habit and repetition, of course, you can start to make it, feel habitual and more automatic if you, if you repeat it often enough if it's for a cause or a goal or a value that you believe in that's going to help because then you're going to be more motivated so that goes back to like the question of the job you have or what have you what if i change my name to max power or slight kerbopple gum like <laughs> would 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 either name make my personality change there, there are some findings that suggest our personalities are influenced by the names we're given, especially if our names are unpopular or rare or they have negative connotations. So hmm. there was there was quite a cruel um, dating study where they, they looked at the popularity of people's names and ha- how much they were um, on, on a dating app. People wanted to go out with them. And yeah, people with um, less popular names, less trendy, you know, popular names, uh, tended to get rejected more often. And then the research has actually expanded out and looked at other aspects of these people's well-being, and they found they tended to be less confident. Uh, um, their overall psychological well-being was, was lower. 
some fascinating insights there from cognitive neuroscientist Dr Christian Jarrett from Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Would you like a four-day week? Yeah, of course. That'd be great. And what do you do for a living at the moment? Pharmacy. So they would make you work five, six days? So we don't open Sundays. Yeah, so Mondays, I don't work Mondays. Five days. And would you like four days? Same money, would you work harder in the pharmacy? Of course I would, yeah. I'd put love into giving out to Salpadine. And do you put love giving out Salpadine at the moment? No, I judged them. And that's the thing, you don't want to give them too many painkillers, do you? No, because they get addicted. I think it's fab, yes. I would agree with that, yes. <laughs> and you would love that. And, and what do you do for a living? I'm a hairdresser. How many days a week do you work? I work five, yeah. So four days. Would people get better styles, better haircuts? Ah, uh, yes, yes. They would look fab. You were a homemaker. You were a housewife. Um, in a way, you were working 24-7, weren't you? I had a great life, and I'm very happy now. And I'm very old. So that's the end of it. And how old are you? <laughs> 89. And was it nice being at home looking after the children and not having to pursue a not career? Not really. Would you have liked to have gone out and worked? I would have liked to have had an interesting job, which I wasn't qualified to do. You're an estate agent. You've got to uh, work long hours. Uh, at the moment, during the pandemic, you had to do Zoom and you had to fly drones into homes and stuff like that. <laughs> but could you do a four-day week? Is that possible? Because you just show people around sometimes late at night, don't you? Generally, look, estate agency is a service business and you kind of have to have the people in the door. It's one of the biggest assets that they'll ever buy. So, like, the virtual tours and all were fantastic for, for during the COVID. But unless we're showing people on a Saturday and Sunday, the actual property, it's, you know, it's a difficult... So do you uh, work every day sometimes? Uh, yeah, like we do a lot of new builds. Uh, we're lucky to have a lot of new builds on the books. So, yeah, we work most days. Would Saturdays, you like Sundays. a four-day week? No. no you I, wouldn't? No, I don't think so. Would you be no. down commission? Well, it's not even commission. We're lucky. I'm one of the directors there, so we're kind of... So you are the company? Yeah, for myself and John there now, like we're both seven days a week. And you need to get those properties sold. You need to That's get your it. 1%. If you kind of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you're not on the ground, you won't get them sold. So it's definitely... Uh, kind of a service business that you have to be shown, you know. So a four-day week would not work for you? No, I don't think so, no. Well, my wife is debating. She's just gone on a four-day week. From a five-day, she found a terrible strain, especially when you're working at home on, on the kitchen table. You know, five days in the office is one thing, but five days at home trying to be productive at the kitchen table is completely different. So she's gone on a four-day week, and she's not going back, and I think she's finding it very And good. she loves it. What she day does. does she take off? Monday. She works, is working opposite somebody else. Uh, so Monday's they, a nice day to get off. I know some yeah. people take the Wednesday off. They take the middle of the week off. Yeah. The tax man takes so much of our salary anyway. That's Being true. down one day, mm. it, you know, it, it's actually it not the biggest really. hit, is it? No, it isn't. No, it doesn't take a whole lot off after the tax and the USC and the rest of it. So you're a taxi driver. You're doing a four-day week at the moment anyway. Yes, and it, it suits me. I choose the days I'm, I think are most profitable. That's the joy of being self-employed. Well, I'm only working part-time, so I work three days a week at the moment. But I suppose the problem with me as a student, someone who's trying to balance studying and work, is I can't work full-time, but at the same time, you have financial pressures, you have to pay fees or whatever. So, yeah, I'd be very much open to a four-day week. I think this whole notion of you have to almost work... Like some people I know working 60 hours a week on minimum wage just to make ends meet is absolutely ridiculous. I think to look at it as just a four-day week is a bit... Yeah, a bit too nine-to-five. I think you need to look at society as a whole and how you can actually make society work for everyone rather than the few who actually four days a week would work for them financially, you know.
So I'm five days a week, uh, nine to five, Monday to Friday. Would it help the environment? There'd be less cars on the road, a bit like there was over the last year, less people on public transport. If they're doing a four day week, would it help the environment? Well, yeah, I suppose it absolutely would. If people are staying at home, um, it means, well, hopefully less cars on the road, which would be great for me because I work on the road. Um, so I'd be in favour of it. Uh, yeah, I always find it's hard to fully disconnect yourself from work now, especially with the, with the society we have today, with everybody with iPhones, uh, emails are ready to our hands, and it's very and hard to separate culture yourself. always culture creeps in, doesn't it? Exactly, yeah. So, you know, speaking from our own point of view, we work Monday to Friday, but... Our customers, their main trading hours on the weekends, and it's rare that a Saturday goes by that I don't get a call. And you work in alcohol sales. Exactly, yeah. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Is it simply you're in the arts? Um, you're a, a, basically you're in the gig economy. Sorry, you know you're, you're you're not. You can't depend on this, so we're not going to have any dealings with it. Do they ever suggest to you by the, yeah, do they ever suggest Mark that maybe you don't get the 80% mortgage, do they ever say we'll give you 50% and that means if you get into trouble we'll more than get our money back because that's what banking is all about, having some sort of collateral do they ever say to you, you know if you can find a bigger deposit, we'll give you a loan well, you know, where does a bigger deposit come from? It's It comes from the kind of economics that says borrow from the bank of mom and dad. I don't have a bank of mom and dad. <laughs> OK. I come from a regular family. You know, we don't I, I'm not a, I'm not from a rich background. So if you're paying that amount out uh, monthly, the idea of getting a half of your uh, uh, of the price of a house together is 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 not going to happen. And, and what it means to me is that I'm effectively locked out of the, the mortgage market, and I'm now going to be spending this for the rest of my life. I'm going to be paying this amount of money and more because every year 4% is added. I can never retire. I can never plan. I If mm-hmm. I get sick, I'm, I'm, I'm done for. If What happens when I'm in my 70s? You know, I'm not going to be able to start m- making more and more money. So basically, my, my old age is really, really, really going to be a difficult time for me yeah. and I'm not the only one uh, Many people in the arts and I, I recall uh, years ago one of my colleagues in RT who was in the RT rep was desperately worried because they lived in accommodation where they lived I think in the basement of a house in Sandymount mm. and then that was sold over their heads and they had been a sitting tenant and therefore they enjoyed a very low rent which they could afford yeah. And then suddenly they were facing market rent and the affordability was gone. And that was just such a, a crippling worry for them. It so is, I mean, the I system like, needs to change. Well, there are, no, there are effectively no protections for tenants in, in Ireland. I, I, I wrote a, a, a piece you know, where, where I said that if, if you have an, a dog or a cat, even at my age, you have to ask permission to have your dog and your cat. For most renters, if you have a dog and a cat, you're going to be moving four or five times or six times. Each time you've got to ask, please, can I have a cat? Please, is it okay if I keep my dog whilst paying off your mortgage? Is it okay for that? Like there's nothing, there's no, there's no security of tenure. There's no fair rents. The market is is really going crazy. And what happens is those of us who are marginalised or are the edge of markets are being squeezed so hard that it's going to make our lives untenable. 
Now, uh, you know, but the listeners are saying, yeah, we, we have great sympathy. However, what happens if you don't have work and you have a mortgage and you can't pay it? What then? Who, who carries the cash? I have never missed my rent. I can't miss my rent. So you know, the same sort like of I logic can't. applies that you would ultimately be thrown out of your accommodation, whether you owned it through a mortgage or whether you're renting it. If you can't pay the rent or if you can't pay the mortgage, you then have to fall at the mercy of the state in some form. But like, you could say that about anybody. You could say that about, yeah. you know, if I got a mortgage because I had a big job, what happens if you lose your job? Like, yeah. you keep working. What happens I'm, if you get sick? Well, with most people who have a mortgage, they have mortgage insurance or blah, blah. So that covers them to a certain extent. A renter can't get that. A renter can't afford to be sick. A renter can't afford to grow old. And there's and nothing... There are, this is, Mark, in other countries, there are resolutions to these kind of problems. Mm. You know, controlled rents that uh, yeah. go up with maybe the cost of living index. But uh, there are rental properties, for example, in in Austria, I think, in France. Yes. Where, cost where, prices and... Yeah, but, but where your rent... Is you, you rent from the local authority, and your rent depends on your income. So then, as your income diminishes, you pay less. Yeah, and but people of all classes—be you a surgeon or a shop worker—all uh, sorts of people share those kinds of uh, of accommodation on that basis. It seems like a very socially responsible way to approach things. It does, but I don't think it's happening here. And even just lately, we had a little street party on my little street that I am. And two of the people are already moving. One has been served notice already to go. They're a working couple. They're struggling to try and get a mortgage together now or whether they go back into the rental market and the fear of all that. I see that happening all to a lot of my groups of friends. The, the, because the, the, the cost of houses is going up, the rental market becomes more unstable. Uh, some landlords see that there's, a, there's a, a chance to make more rent, so they throw their, their, their tenants out, etc. We feel that at the bottom of the market really intensely. It adds a t- sort of terror and fear into our lives. And, and like, I have, I have never, you know... I. I, I am not in receipt of welfare payments. I didn't take PUP during during lockdown because I was busy and I was working. I don't get HAP. I pay my rent every month. You know, it seems like there's no wriggle room for somebody like me. Some strong words there from actor and writer Mark O'Halloran from The Pat Kenny Show. On Thursday, Brent Pope joined Kieran Cuddihy on the Thursday interview. And I have to say, it was wonderfully direct. This can't be easy on, on the mental health either. No, and, and I'm an advocate of mental health, as you know. You know, I mean, that's the, what, that's the most important thing, you know, that I possibly do now uh, in my life is talk to people about, you know, mental health, especially over COVID and stuff like that. But I've really had to deep... Uh, dig deep myself into my toolbox of, of, of to remain positive because, man, it, anybody out there will tell you that's going through, you know, similar things, you know, that it, it wears you down. It wears you down mentally as well. And that's the hard thing about not having a diagnosis in a sense is that you don't know, you know, you don't know how to fight something, only, you know, holistically, I suppose, is the way that I'm trying to do it now. I'm trying to say, well, look, you know, come at it at a different angle. You know, how, how do I, how do I, how do I, you know, how do I look at things positively, you know, but 
Mm. You know, sometimes it's hard. And 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 again, I go back to the fact that it's it's uh, it's hard when you're alone. Um, and I always say something <laughs> something something good comes out of something bad. I've always believed that from a positive side of things. So when I was in hospital there, I came up with this idea that I want to I want to do after you know hopefully fingers crossed I'm better is that is that set up some sort of network whereby sports celebrities or whatever can call in and see people, nothing PR or nothing charity driven, but yeah. just some sort of, I call it support because I saw the value in that um, when I was in hospital about people just talking and just, you know, some people just wanted to talk about rugby or about sport and, and not about their illness or not about their diagnosis. And I thought those people that were so alone at that time welcomed people just having a chat on the ward. And I thought there must be something that I can do to facilitate that. So it would be a case of getting a lot of, say, rugby players or GAA players that would be prepared to maybe call into someone after training. You know, maybe it's somebody that's that's feeling alone down the country. Maybe it's somebody that's been widowed. Maybe it's somebody in hospital with a terminal diagnosis. Maybe it's... A, it, it's it's, but not done in a sort of the PR way that, you know, that the photographs and everything like that. Just somebody calling in and, and you know, if Johnny Sexton was coming home from training one night, he calls in to, to a fan that's, you know, going through a pretty rough time. Mm. Because I think a lot of people want to give back, and especially a lot of sporting people want to give back something. They just don't know how and they don't know why. Because when I was first asked to go and talk to people, I thought, oh, what can I offer someone? What can I talk to yeah. someone about that's got a diagnosis maybe that's terminal? What, you know, what? But then I thought about it a different way, and I thought that's all about me. You know, it should be about them. It's, 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 what, it's what respite you can offer them, you know. So Has that – because it, it, I'm sure a lot of people listening will, will be in absolute agreement that – Sometimes just the distraction of talking about Absolutely. something else can 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 provide relief. Has that made the last year then particularly difficult? Because one of the issues we've had is that there's all those little mm. things in life, and we call them little things. They're actually not. It turns out they're they're big things. The distractions haven't been there for us. No, the distractions haven't been there, and and that that is playing that is playing on people's mental health. You know, the the the, the water cooler meeting with somebody at work, the camaraderie you have with workmates. You know, people working from home, being with their fam- being with their family when they're not used to it. All these things have come into play to 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 really test people's mental health. I've had a lot of people on to me as, as my in my role as a sort of a, a you know a, a, a trained psychotherapist and that who have been struggling with anxiety, and it's the first time they've had anxiety at that level uh, in their lives. And I say, what's it around? And it's around. It's around things, simple things like Brent. I, you know, I'm 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 so worried about going back to the first day at work because I feel like it's it's bringing up things the first day at school. You know, it's yeah. like I've got to make reconnections again. Are those connections with new people? Are they going to be the same? So I think we've really got to look after when people are going back to work. My bit of advice is really look after each other in those first coming periods. You know, those I suppose those those periods when we're getting used to what the new norm looks like, and just be wary that people are coming at it from different uh, ways and also coming from different levels of some people are embracing coming back to work. Other people are, uh, 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 it's, it's, it's anxiety ridden mm. from some people have had the last 12 months have, have been awful for them because they may have had to, they may have had to adjust their whole lives through COVID. Uh, so, and I think we forget about that. And I, I, I don't want, pe- I want people to emerge. I don't know if this sounds corny and it's, it, and again, it's not eliciting any, 
ego because I'm not about that. But I want people to emerge on COVID. I want them to, to, to know what it's like to be a kinder person to other people. And I don't mean that saying that people have to necessarily give away their material wants and needs. I, I'm not asking anybody to do that. I'm just asking people to be more compassionate and be yeah. more empathetic uh, to people that are, are less fortunate to them. And and that's that's the good thing for me that's come out of for, for, for me for, for me this year because it's it's really said okay you know what is what is important in my life and yeah. what do I need to what do I need to give back and I need to continuously give back to community country and when I say country I mean Ireland and, and, and New Zealand but probably Ireland that's where my home is but to give something back um, yeah and in and, and, and a kind of way those random acts of kindness that that smile, that time you give somebody in the shop, that yeah. you know, that can be enough to that can be enough to change people's whole emphasis from a positive to a negative and vice versa, from a negative to a positive. What a refreshingly honest interview. Robbie Anless writer and campaigner, Brent Pope, from the Heart Shoulder, Wick here in Cuddihy. Now this week, writer and director Harry McQueen joined John Fardy on screen time. You know, as it happened. The week before I watched your movie, I watched The Father with Anthony yeah. Hopkins. And n- not that the two are similar, because there's a, a blaring difference or a glaring difference in that Anthony Hopkins is in the throes of this and there's only rare moments that he's lucid. And what I found really affecting about your film was that Stanley Tucci's oh, his character is almost on the brink of it. He's still yeah. very cognizant and he's very aware of what's about to come. And we only get flickers mm. of the mm. sadness that's going to come or the, or the disability that's going to face him. Was that your sense of it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that th- this, this film in the context of dementia kind of deals with quite a specific period in the dementia journey where mm. the person that's ill still has, you know, a lot of their faculties and is still able to make their own informed decisions about things mostly um, which I found that I found that really interesting anyway in you know in real life but also I, the focus really was on how dementia changes love how it mm. changes the dynamics of a relationship like you know the collateral damage of that kind of uh, diagnosis is is fascinating you know how how relationships change because of it how someone might go from being a lover to a carer yeah um, you know that that fascinated me and I found it really inspiring actually so yeah you know, I, I'm sorry to keep mentioning other films, but I remember going to see Brokeback Mountain in 2005 or 2006. And it was such a big deal at the time that here was this mainstream Hollywood movie with big Hollywood stars in a gay relationship. And I, the only reason I mention that is that it was entirely incidental in a way in this story. And that's not to do with a disservice that Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth are playing gay people. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just a love story. And it was interesting to me that it was so down the list of things you might read about this movie, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. I mean, did that strike you that the mm-hmm. fact that it's a gay relationship in a way was incidental? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the um, main reasons I, I wanted to present that relationship in that way. You know, I mean, I think firstly, we don't see a lot of same sex relationships at that age represented yeah. on screen or in fact any any um any sexual orientation that kind of romantic love mature love isn't something we see a lot anyway mm. and also you know i was supernova is about a lot of universal things yes um, so it, it felt yeah 
I think it's really important to to sort of tell original stories and, and hopefully you know make things that are inspiring and the idea that we could have a, a same-sex relationship that did you know that didn't inform the narrative in any mm. way commented on isn't mentioned at all by anyone in the yeah. film felt like new territory yeah and I'm really glad we did I think it's um, one of the only films that's, that's ever really done that I, I would yeah say. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And, you know, it, it, it's a love story, pure and simple. And I'm yeah. sure lots of people have say this to you, but, you know, I happen to be married to a woman. But mm. I, I was thinking about what's going to happen down the line if her or I be in that situation. So it's very mm. much a love story, almost irregardless of sexual orientation, you know. Can mm. I ask you then about the two amazing leads, Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth? Did you always want them when you realised you were making this movie? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think it's I don't write with actors in mind or anything so I, I really try not that can be problematic because you often don't get them right exactly yeah yeah you're you're definitely putting it boxing yourself into a corner if you're you know um devoted to someone that's going to yeah. be busy but um but I just think that's a good way to make a project to not think about that too much until you have to um but yeah I mean we got really lucky obviously with those guys that they are incredible in the film I think um, I think it's a bit of a masterclass what they do and you know some of that is be, you know based on you know it's, it's helped at least by the fact that they are really really good friends out of work you know they they love each other um, as mates and I think you mm. can really tell uh, in, in, in the story in the in the way they they perform it so it was just yeah a really lovely collaboration they're, yeah they're brilliant. Writer, actor and director Harry McQueen from Screen Time with John Fardy. And of course, you can tune into John every Saturday evening from six till seven. OK, I'm going to leave you with now the great Bobby Kerr zip lining for Down to Business in County Wicklow. Have a great weekend. OK, let's go. We'll go on up and uh, we'll, uh, we'll go for a spin, as the fella says. Now I'm up here. On three metres height. Three metres height. Uh, there's lots of... Uh, greenery i'm uh, clipped on and i'm about to do a zip wire uh chris is there anything i should be worried about here no no just keep holding the bar with one hand from each side and start running at the end so you land on your feet okay right then folks here we go enjoy Oh, that wasn't uh, the most spectacular landing. I kind of landed on my bum and bounced along the ground a bit. Chris, uh, I won't get many marks for uh, uh, for uh, for talent, let's call it. Oh, no, you did great. Don't worry. It happens a lot of times. People just, it's instinct to lift their legs instead of putting them down. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Busy day ahead. Why not save time and shop online at supervalue.ie? Let our expert pickers do the shopping for you. And our helpful drivers deliver it when you get home. Download the Supervalue app now or shop online at supervalue.ie.